Well, good morning, Coastal Way Church. It's so good to be with you. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Tanner Powell. I'm the college director here at Coastway. I'm so excited to be with you guys. Uh, we're picking up in week eight of our series we're in called City in a City. We are going to be walking through 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start making your way that direction. Um, but just to recap, what we have really been talking about this whole series is that we are citizens of another city. We belong to a better city, a better country, one not of this world. And as Christians living in the world, we are both caught up and called up. We are caught up in the culture of sin, of destruction, of ways the world is going opposite of God. We are caught up living in this, but we're also called up to live differently, set apart. Peter uses the term elect exiles. We are called to be exiles, strangers to a world and pursuing a relationship with God, being used by him for his glory and mission on earth. So the question we're asking is, how do we remain in a world who rejects us? And how do we walk in a world that does not want us? And that is really what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I recently heard of a story that starts back in 1967 with a man named Kenneth Elzinga. At the age of 26, he was hired as an economics professor at the University of Virginia. And one could guess that a university that was founded by Thomas Jefferson, there was a serious separation between religion and education. Now, Elzinga was a relatively new believer at the time, and he had agreed there was a campus ministry on campus that wanted him to come speak. And so he agreed, of course. Um, but one of his colleagues came to him and warned him that being explicit about his faith would actually hinder his career there. So Elzinga was walking across campus one day, and he saw a flyer that stunned him. The flyer had his face on it in a prominent place in campus. Everyone could see and said that he was going to be speaking at this campus ministry about his faith. Elzinga began to worry what would his fellow professors think of him? Would this harm his tenure chances? Would he lose his job? After hours of soul searching, he went home that night and he was wrestling with what to do. And he snuck back on campus that night in a dark place and he took that flyer down and he went home. And he wrestled all night with God. The next morning, he gets up, he goes back to that same spot, and he hangs the flyer back up. And what he says is, after hours of soul-searching, he concluded that his life was not about career ambition, but about faithful discipleship, and that being private about his faith was not an option as a citizen of the city of God. He would go on to speak at that campus ministry event, and four decades later, Ozinga has been named Professor of the Year multiple times and is still a speaker in high demand at these campus events. He will be the first to say that serving only one master has been liberating. Why? Because pleasing an audience of one makes him less anxious, less sensitive to criticism, and more courageous. Because in doing so, we become more secure and, less, and compete less for our honor. And I think this is a beautiful picture of the situations we find ourselves in as 
citizens of the city of God living in a world who rejects us. And this is really the context Peter is talking to here. And what he is going to say to us is that we are living in a sinful culture, one that pursues the opposite way of God, pursues the passions of our flesh. And when we don't do that, they're shocked when we don't. They're confused when we don't. They persecute us when we don't. See, Elzinga was tempted here. He could sin against God by denying his faith. He could keep quiet. He could walk with the world. But God calls us to cease from this, to cease from that sin, and instead to steward ourselves. And that's what he did. He stewarded his life, his opportunity, his faith to proclaim the good news of the gospel to his colleagues, to students. And he has been well known by the university for speaking openly about his faith. And that really sets up what we are going to be talking about in 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to go ahead and give you the sermon in a sentence. As citizens of the city of God, we cease from sin and steward ourselves. We cease from sin and steward ourselves. So for Peter, so much of the Christian life, it really begins with the mind. For him, he starts in the mind so that it goes to the heart and flows through the hands. And we're going to see that a lot today in this text And he really does begin of, how do I cease from sin? And so Peter's going to call us three things to bring to mind, three things to remember that's going to flow through our hearts and to our hands. And so it's going to be remember Jesus, remember who you are, and remembering what's coming. So let's jump to that first point. We must remember Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We remember Jesus. We remember his past sufferings. Jesus serves as the ultimate model for living a sinful life in a sinful world. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he turned from sin in obedience to God. He was persecuted and hated for doing this. He went against the cultural grain. His whole ministry, people tried to stop him, tried to trip him over his words. Even his own family did this. His whole ministry was full of obedience to God, yet rejected by the world. And ultimately, his life costed him his life. Being beaten, mocked, and killed. Having to face the lowest form of humanity and death, death on a cross. See, church, If the Jesus we follow suffered in the flesh for resisting sin, why should we think our lives will be any different? I love how John Mark Comer says this, I will never fit in. I will never be cool. I will never be liked or well-respected or admired by the culture. And that's okay. Because my Savior wasn't. And so what does Peter tell us to do? He says to arm yourselves with the same way, the same mind, of thinking. And this is military language Peter is doing he, using here. He's saying, arm yourself. Get ready for battle. Put on the armor because the battle against sin is a war we are in. And this armor that we put on is clear here. It is the mind of Christ, his attitude towards sin. 
And we are not surprised when we suffer for living differently. Because the one who lived a perfect life suffered greatly. And so we are reminded that we are not alone in our suffering. When we are rejected by the world, we have a Savior who already has gone before us and has faced the same thing, and we follow in his footsteps. We share in his suffering. Secondly, Peter's going to recall to us to remember who we are. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Our, our union with Christ truly has changed everything about us, has changed our identity. Our citizenship has transferred from the city of man to the city of God. We have gone from sinners to saints because we are now united in Christ. And having been united in Christ in his sufferings, we are called to cease from sin. And I know what a lot of you are thinking, what the heck does that mean? Cease from sin. And so I just want to remind us, hey, when we see something confusing like this, we must use what is clear in the text, in the passage, and in the Bible to speak into this. So cease from sin. There's a big difference here between perfection and direction. Let's say what Peter is not saying. Peter is not saying that as Christians, we will never struggle with sin again, and we live perfect lives. He's not saying that but he's saying that our renewed identity in Christ has redirected our lives in a way that we turn from sin and pursue holiness. That is what cease from sin means. It means a complete new direction in pursuit of Jesus, turning away from the ways of the world and turning towards God. And we know this because throughout the New Testament, we see several instances of spirit-filled believers, including Peter, to continue to fall into sin, to be tempted and make mistakes. But what the difference is, is that they redirect their lives towards God. They repent of their sin, turning away from it and pursuing holiness. That is what direction is. And Peter explains what this direction looks like by saying that we're to spend the rest of our lives no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And if you're confused by that term, the will of God, Just so you know, we go to the Word of God to understand the will of God. The Bible is full of what God is doing in our world and He's trying to do in you. So that is where we discover that. So we no longer live for the city of man and sin, but we pursue the city of God and the will of God. Let's pick back up in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles are just those people who are not followers of God living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, basically meaning a flood of reckless living, and they malign you. So Peter gives us a list of how the city of man lives. So I really want to focus in on that first word, sensuality, and that's not a common word used much. But here, let's let's give a biblical definition of what sensuality is. It's a bodily appetite for pleasure, especially sexually. A bodily appetite for pleasure. And the city of man is said to live this way, in pursuit of sensuality. And let's be honest, don't we see this all around us, surrounding us? We live in a culture that says what we feel is what's true. 
that having multiple sexual partners is admirable, where pornography is at our fingertips, where indulgence in drugs and alcohol is just deemed a good weekend, where a hookup is a swipe right away, where gaining authority and power over others is just called a career goal. That's how the city of man lives, sensuality. And we just see, this is Peter writing in the first century, not much has really changed. It was happening then, it's happening now. And what we see is this sensuality, this passions of the flesh, this appetite for pleasure gives rise to sinful passions and desires, which lead to drunkenness, acting on those desires, and orgies, acting on those desires with others. And then you can put drunkenness and orgies together and you get a first century drinking party. It sounds a little crazy, but it's, it's what the culture did. It's what our culture does in ways. And it's not even different than what our culture celebrates. You can think of shows that are really popular right now on HBO and Netflix like Euphoria or Pam and Tommy. These shows basically model a life of reckless, sinful living, full of sex, drugs, breaking the law, just really giving themselves to whatever whim their desires are at the time. And our culture celebrates it. We're, we're all wrapped up in it. We can't help but want to watch it. They talk about it all the time on social media. Why? Because that's, that's what they're running after, those appetites of the flesh. But this is not who we are as citizens of the city of God. We are to live in the world, but not of the world. He's saying that is enough. He says, the time that has passed suffices for doing these things. The time that has passed suffices for doing these things. That's enough. That's really what Peter's saying here. You've done enough sinning for one lifetime. How much more do you need to do? You've had enough hookups. You've had enough drinks. You've had enough wild weekends. And it doesn't even matter if you're 10 years old. This is true for you. You've done enough sinning. You've done enough sinning for one lifetime. It's enough. It's time to turn from it. How much longer do you have to keep on going to realize that this is not the peak of the human experience? How much longer until you realize there's just got to be something more? And Peter's not just talking to non-believers here. He's talking to believers, to Christians. How much longer do you, Christian, have to keep falling into those sins until you finally say, that's enough? I'm not going to keep doing that. I'm going to live differently. But for us, in Christ, we have something so much greater than what the world is after. We have fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. No matter how appetizing sin may seem, we must remember our identity, that we have been redeemed in Christ for these things, from sin, but it is all for our joy taking the mindset that this is for our good, not our grief. And so when you do not join in the city of man in this way of sinful living, Peter says that they will be surprised. They won't understand why you don't cut corners in your job to save time. They won't understand why you don't get drunk on the weekends. They won't understand why you're still a virgin and saving sex for marriage. And it says that for these things, they malign you. They mock you. They look at you strange. They may stop hanging around you. They may even hate you and persecute you. But what we know is that this flood of wild, reckless living is going to come crashing on their lives one day. 
One day it's all going to fall apart. This leads us to the third thing Peter tells us to remember, is to remember what is coming. Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, there is coming a day when Christ is going to return and all people are going to have to stand before him and give an account. The city of man will have to answer to God for their sin and why they persecuted his children. And we can trust that God is going to judge justly. They can truly just bow before Jesus now or they can bow when he returns in judgment. And the day is coming soon when they're going to have to answer to God. And those who are apart from Christ on that day will face wrath. But yes, this means destruction for the city of man, but it is the ultimate hope for the city of God. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. The dead mentioned here are those who have believed the gospel in their lives following Christ and have since died, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So even though they face physical death, like everyone else, death does not have the last word for them. That's what it means. In Christ, we are given life. And just as confident as we are that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that is how confident we should be that we too will rise one day. We too will have conquered death with Christ because we are united to him. And the coming of Christ is what we are to hope in as believers. Even the good things in this life won't even compare to this life that is to come. So good. So yes, this life is not going to be easy as a Christian. Ceasing from sin is a daily battle, but we have to set our minds on the truth, remembering that even Jesus, our Savior, faced these sufferings. Remembering our new identity is not one of this world, but one of the city of God. And remembering that Christ is coming and on that day, all will have to give an account. And so in verse 7, Peter is going to continue this idea of the coming of Christ. It says, the end of all things is at hand. It is a call for all believers to realize, hey, it's any day now. We don't know the day, the hour, the time, nothing. We don't know, but it is any day now. And therefore, what Peter is going to call us to do is to steward ourselves, to steward our lives, live our lives in a way that reflects that the end is coming soon. And so I, I, I remember, a lot of you know, me and my wife, we moved from Raleigh, North Carolina this past summer. And um, when, when we figured out that we were going to move for the second mission to Myrtle Beach, we had a kind of a date that we were moving. It was July 7th. And we said, okay, we have a few months. Let's plan out what exactly we're going to do. So we, we wrote down all the restaurants we wanted to eat at one last time. We wrote down all, all the people we wanted to hang out with, all the things that we wanted to do, and we made a plan. And there was an urgency behind that plan, too. We had to get it done. And so the last week, we were just like eating at all these random places, and we, we lived knowing that it was coming to an end really soon. But that's the message he's given for us as believers, too. We need to live as if the end is coming soon, to live our lives differently we didn't live like that all the time, but we lived differently knowing that the end was coming. And that is what he is calling us to do, is to steward ourselves in a way that the, knowing that the end is at hand. And so Peter's going to give us four ways to steward ourselves for the city of God. The first way he calls us to steward is to steward our minds. 
So remember, he start, starts with the mind, to the heart, to the hands. And we're going to see the same pattern here. To steward our minds. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's two ways that you can respond to the fact that the end is at hand. You can be sane or you can be senseless. What does it look like to be sane? It looks like those two things, self-controlled and sober-minded. Both of those words go together. They're basically almost synonyms. Is having this mindset right here, what he's talking about. It means that nothing is clouding your judgment, that you are thinking clearly and accurately about the things going on in your life. But what does the opposite of this look like? What does it look like to live senselessly? It looks like doing anything that blurs your vision in pursuit of God. And he uses the word sober-minded. So the opposite of sober-minded is drunk-minded. And this is so true of alcohol. What does alcohol do? It blurs our vision. I've been doing college ministry or in college for the, over seven years now. And I've seen people abuse alcohol to a point where their vision isn't blurred and they're in no state of making wise choices. I have never had a conversation with a drunk person where I thought, wow, they, they really understand what God is doing in their lives and how he wants to use him for his mission. I have never had that conversation, ever. Why? Because alcohol, to an abusive point, blurs our vision in a way that makes us walk senselessly. But there's also so many other things besides alcohol that do this. Think about it. Social media, the shows and movies we watch, the influencers we follow, the friends we have, those relationships we're in. For you, it might not be alcohol, but what, what is blurring your vision, taking your eyes off of what God has called you to? If we're not careful, all these things will keep us from being sober-minded and self-controlled. And we need to be sensible and alert in these last days for the sake of prayer. It says, for the sake of our prayers, as Christians living in the last days, we are called to pray. Prayer is the primary way we align ourselves with God. We communicate with him. Therefore, as the city of man pursues intoxication, the city of God is to pursue intercession. We are called to pray, to pray on behalf of the world, to pray on the behalf of ourselves and of other believers. We pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. And the only way to do this is when we're thinking clearly. We must steward our minds so that God's thoughts and God's ways becomes our thoughts and our ways. Remember, so he starts with the mind and he's going to move to the heart. So Peter, secondly, he's going to call us to steward our hearts. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. He says, above all. That means, hey, listen up. This is really important, guys, right here. Keep loving one another. And now love has always been the main virtue Christians live by, what we look to, what sets us apart. And the phrase here of earnestly is showing that this love is a continual, genuine selfless act towards others. It's not a feeling we have. It is a choice we make. We are to continually love others. And it says we are called to do this because love covers a multitude of 
sins. And once again, we hit a little place that's like, okay, what, what does that mean? Love covers sins. Does that mean if I love someone that makes up for my sin? Like, what, what, is, he, what is he talking about here? And so remember, we must use what is clear in the Bible to explain what's confusing in the Bible. Um, nowhere in the Bible, no biblical writer says that this will cover your own sins. It is only true that the blood of Christ is the only thing that can atone for sins in our lives. That is what's clear. Even Peter makes this super clear in this letter. So what does he mean by our love covers a multitude of sins? It's not talking about taking away sin of ourselves. It's talking about forgiving the sins of others. This kind of love we're called to is a uniting love, one that brings restoration to relationships with others. When others sin against us, we forgive them in a way that overlooks, that covers their sin they had against us. This is what it means. And this kind of love is radical and different than the city of man. Why? Because what the city of man says, if someone hurts me, I'm going to hurt them. That is most of our inclinations. I know I'm always tempted. If I feel hurt, I have this urge to want to hurt someone back. But we have to turn from that. That's not what we're called to do. The city of God responds to hurt with love towards the one who hurts us. We extend forgiveness. We seek restoration when wrong is done. I think Jesus gives us a beautiful example of this in John 21. So John and Peter, the writer of this letter, uh, Peter had denied Jesus three times. He basically left Jesus out to dry, to be crucified and killed. And man, like Peter did Jesus dirty. But in John 21, Jesus, after he was resurrected and returned, he comes to Peter on the beach and he restores him. He asks if Peter loves him. Peter says, yes. He says, shepherd my flock. He extends love. He look, overlooks, he covers that sin that Peter did against him in a way that unites them, once again, fully reconciled. That is the type of love that we are called to have towards one another. When someone wrongs us, we, we bring it, press in. We love them in a way that seeks restoration and offers forgiveness. And so after this, we're flowing from the heart into the hands. Peter is going to call us, thirdly, to steward our possessions. Steward our possessions, the things we have. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So what is hospitality? It's a great question. Biblically, hospitality means love for the stranger, love of the other. In the first century context, Peter is writing in, the church was actually dependent on hospitality. It wouldn't exist without it. There was such persecution in that day that they could not often meet in public spaces or buildings. They had to meet in homes. They had to welcome people in to their very lives. And as the persecution continued, some people were driven out of their home cities and forced to travel and stay with strangers. And these Christians would open up their homes to host them, to love them, to care for them, to provide for them. They stewarded their possessions in a way that helped their brothers and sisters in Christ out. And showing hospitality basically means loving others in a way where you open up these things. For us, we open up our homes. We open up our lives, open up our things for the sake of others. And Coastway, I just want to commend so many of you guys. So many of your guys' hospitality has made us a hospitable church. 
I just want to recognize that so many of you guys have opened up your homes for, to host things like community groups. So many of you guys invite your neighbors others over. Um, I, I personally have had dinner around your table um, and got to know you and fellowship with you. I just want to say that is awesome. Like that is what embodying hospitality looks like. You open up your life. And if you're not a homeowner, don't think you can't be hospitable. Anyone can be hospitable. We're all commanded to be hospitable. It could be your lunch hour. Just offering, hey, you want to grab lunch? I'm opening up my, my lunch hour to have someone, to bring them in, to love on them. It can be even your desk at work. Just being a place where a coworker can come and vent to you or talk to you about what's going on in their lives. You can use the things you have. God has entrusted you with to steward in a way that loves others in a hospitable way. So it really does not matter how much you have. We're all called to steward every possession we have from God. He wants us to use in a hospitable way. And it says, don't do this begrudgingly, with grumbling. Um, So it basically is saying, hey, we're not inviting someone over. We're not opening up our lives for the sake of getting someone back. It's saying, oh, I'm going to invite this person over, and in a week they better invite me over. I'm going to be mad at them. That's what it means. Hey, I'm I'm doing this and expecting nothing in return. It it comes from a sacrificial heart, willing to give instead of receive. Love counts when love costs. Church, hospitality is costly with your time, with your things, but it's a form of worship as we open up our lives. I love in Acts 2, they give an illustration of the early church at Pentecost as the Spirit filled these believers, and it says how they lived out their lives. It says this, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Church, that is hospitality. They were selling the things they had to love others, to give to others. They were opening up their lives. They were doing things, eating, worshiping together. Why? All for the praise of God. That is hospitality. And then lastly, I know this is what a lot of you guys are excited about. We're called to steward our gifts. Yes, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts a little bit. We're called to steward our gifts. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Hey, church, if you are in Christ, you have received a gift. Each one of us have received at least one gift. And guess what? With that gift, we're called to steward it. God is the owner. We are the stewards. He gives us gifts to build up his church. It is our responsibility to do so. So, what, what, what exactly are these gifts? Like, what, what is he talking about here? And so I know a lot of people are going to be tempted to just flip over to 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 to like, oh, I know where this list of spiritual gifts are. My, my, mine's exhortation. There you go. Um, no, no, like, hold on. Let, let's give Peter a chance here to explain and teach us on spiritual gifts. Peter uses a term here that says God's very grace. And this means that God's gifts he gives are multifaceted, that there are numerous of them. And truly, nowhere in the New Testament is there an exhaustive list of all the gifts. A lot of them are different. 
And what, what, what those are, those are examples of some of them. And we know that about all of them, that all are to build up the church, the body of Christ. And so let's give Peter a chance to explain himself about what these are. He gives us two broad categories of these gifts. First are speaking gifts. This is like exhortation, teaching, prophecy, evangelism, etc. There's tons of them. And we are called to use these to speak the words of God. We speak the words of God, the truths of the Bible to others through these gifts of speaking. There are tons of them. And he gives another category, the second category, gifts of serving. These are things such as hospitality, like we just talked about. Giving, mercy, administration. There are tons of them. The serving gifts, really with the hands. It's really just two broad categories to encapsulate all of them out there. He says, I don't really have time to list them all, but here are some of the main, main big categories. And yes, all these gifts are to build up the body. That's great. We're given spiritual gifts. That's awesome, church. Here's the problem. So many of us don't know what they are. We have no idea how God has gifted us or how to use them. And oftentimes, as American Christians, we get so caught up that we're an Enneagram 1 or an ISFJ, Myers-Briggs. We get really in these personalities. Oh, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. But we have no idea how God has gifted us. And I, I'm not hating on, on personality tests. Our staff just did one. I think they're extremely helpful. But what I am saying that more important than any test out there, we must know how God has gifted us and caused us, called us to use these for his body. As believers, we should be keenly aware of God's varied grace in each of our lives. So how do I figure out what my spiritual gifts are? It's a problem. We need to figure them out. So I want to give you guys a mental map to just kind of help you uh, understand, hey, where am I gifted by God? Now can I use them? So there's a Venn diagram that's going to be on the screen. And I want to talk about each of these circles. The first circle is production. I want you to think, what are you good at? What are you doing that you feel naturally able to do? Such as serving, evangelizing, praying for others. Is is there something as you're living out all the commands Christ has called us, is there one of them that comes more naturally to you that you feel exceptionally good at? That's production. Second circle is passion. This is what you're really passionate about with the body of Christ or the mission of God. What has God given you a heart for? Do you love getting to serve with kids to raise the next generation? Do you love hosting people in your homes? Do you feel an overwhelming burden to pray for people's well-being? Do you get excited about sharing the gospel with others? Those things are your passion. What, what gets you excited as you're living out the Christian life? And then lastly is praise. Can you think of a time when people told you that God used you in their life? This is where others will affirm, yes, I think you are really gifted in evangelism. They affirm that you're gifted at serving. They affirm that you're gifted in teaching. You hear what others have to say, the body that say how you are actually serving them. So how do you know what your spiritual gifts are? I would suggest looking at these three categories, production, passion, and praise. And when you find something that fits in the middle of all those categories, you'll likely discover some of the gifts God has gifted you with. And I, I really think we need to press into that. Gifts are to really to serve the body 
and to carry out the mission of God. The best, best illustration I have been told about spiritual gifts is think of a father who is um, out in his garage one day working on his old broke-down car. There's something wrong with the engine. It doesn't work. His kids are inside playing, and he, he needs to get this car running. Um, the father stands there, looks at the car, and he says, you know what, I, uh, I'm going to do something a little different. He goes inside the house, grabs his son and daughter, and walks them out to the car. And he picks up his son, gives him a wrench, and says, hey, turn, turn this right here. Then he, then he picks up his daughter, gives her a screwdriver, and says, hey, twist, twist this right here. Move this hose over here. And they keep doing this. The, father, the father's giving them these tools and just kind of pointing. And before you know it, the car starts. And the kids go crazy. They're like, we fixed the car. They're like, yes, I'm awesome. And the kids are thrilled. Yes, the car is running. And yeah, the dad, the dad's happy the car is running. But he's most happy about he got to do it with his kids. He gave his kids the tools to do it. In church, that is how God gives us gifts. And he wants to use us in that. And I, I just can't but just uh, be in awe, just thinking our dad wants to do this with us as he pursues his mission in this world. He doesn't give us gifts because he needs us. He gives us gifts because he wants us. He wants to do it with us. He, he is so joyful as we use these gifts to build up the body and advance his mission. He wants to work with us. And these gifts are from him. And so how incredible is it that we get to use these for his purposes? And so why? Why do we do all these things? Why do we steward these gifts? Why do we steward our minds, our hearts, our possessions? Why do we steward ourselves, our whole lives? He has an answer for us. Very end. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is where Peter just breaks out and prays. He recognizes that our minds, our hearts, our possessions, everything belongs to God. He is the owner of every breath we take. We are the steward. Everything in life is done so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God is the owner. We are the steward. Church, I think the danger is, is how we get this backwards too much. Too much we say, I'm the owner of my life. This is my time, my treasure, my possessions, my talents. And God, I'll, I'll let you be the steward. I might, I might give you a, a weeknight if, if, if you'll, you'll work out the things in my job. I'll come to church on Sunday if you kind of smooth things out in my marriage. Guys, God's not the steward. He's the owner. He owns everything, our very selves. We are the stewards. So therefore, we steward our minds, our hearts, our possessions, our gifts, everything for the glory of Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ, why you pray with me? Father, I thank you. I thank you that you saved us out of darkness, that you drew us out from the pit into marvelous union with Christ, that our identity has been radically transformed, that we can live a set-apart life in this world despite persecutions, knowing that Jesus faced it too, knowing that we have a newfound identity in him and knowing that he is coming soon. 
and there's everlasting joy in that. God, I pray for all of us in here. I pray that we will take seriously the things God has given us. He is the owner of everything, our hearts, our minds, our possessions, our time, talents, giftings, everything, everything in our life belongs to him. God, would you use us and would would we be faithful to steward these things? Let us be faithfully stewards. Um, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the cross. I thank you that you help us cease from sin and steward ourselves in this life. In Christ's name I pray, amen.